This is a Rooster Teeth production. During certain eras in history, being accidentally buried alive was a very real fear. One that used to happen more often than you think. Surprisingly, it can still happen. We dig deep to find out why in this episode of 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we cover topics, people, places, events, and history of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm Elise Willems. I'm Jessica Vasami. Chances are most of you listening to this podcast are familiar with David Blaine. He's an illusionist known for his many daring feats of endurance. He's considered to be one of the many modern Houdinis, who also happens to be one of David Blaine's inspirations. David Blaine has been active in the magic world for over 25 years now, performing all sorts of extreme tricks that feel kind of more like stunts than illusions. And at the start of his career, he performed one of his very first public feats of endurance, being buried alive. A big way to start. Mm -hmm. It was April 5th, 1999, and 75,000 people gathered on Manhattan's Upper West Side to observe as David Blaine climbed inside a transparent plexiglass coffin with only six inches of headroom and two inches on either side of him. The coffin was then lowered six feet into a dirt pit, just in the middle of Manhattan, I guess, and a three-ton water tank was lowered on top of the coffin. He had nothing inside the coffin but a straw, through which he consumed three tablespoons of water per day. An even more astonishing feat when you consider he was in that glass coffin for a total of seven days. Which means he was also in there for seven nights. Seven days, seven (laughs) nights. Technically, he was buried alive. That being said, he did have some help, and overall his circumstances were controlled and planned ahead. Right. The glass enclosed coffin provided a vantage point for onlookers and a view out for David. Plus, there were crews and medical professionals on site. And all these people made sure that if something went amiss, they'd step in right away. Yeah. There were handlers present to administer water and technicians who pumped warm air into the coffin when temperatures were unexpectedly low. David Blaine knew what he was getting into when he decided to perform this stunt, and he made sure the conditions were just right for him to accomplish it. Yes, which is a very stark contrast to what typically happens when someone is buried alive, usually by accident, resulting in a scenario that is no less than a living nightmare. A living nightmare Mm -hmm. in which you will ultimately die very quickly Mm. if you don't get out. So in this episode, we are looking at how the heck and why someone might wind up taking an unintentional dirt nap (laughs) and what to do if you find yourself six feet underground with no escape. We'll also cover notable stories and historical accounts and look at how this became a very real problem throughout different points in history. Looking at you here, Black Death Plague Pits. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, we're looking at you. Don't don't run, don't walk away from us, <laughs> Black Plague Pits. Face this. Okay, you had a part in this too. And it wouldn't be 30 morbid minutes if we didn't explore some of the fun, quote unquote, and inventive ways people tried to outrun their own mortality. So we are absolutely, you bet your bottom talking about safety coffins and bell systems and all that other gleefully gruesome stuff. <laughs> gleefully. Yes. Yeah. I I think the first time I ever really gave being buried alive thought was 
um, when I saw Kill Bill Volume 2, which was in 2004. So I was uh-huh. in high school at the time. And I just watched that scene. I just watched Uma Thurman get buried alive. And I just sat there, my heart racing. I was like, oh, this is awful. This, I don't, I don't want this to ever happen to me. They did such a great job in that scene oh, too, if you haven't seen it. The wiggle your big toe, her getting out of that <gasps> coffin. Spoiler, yes. sorry. It's a 20 year old movie, but it is, it is such an amazing scene after she's shot full of rock salt and she's in, you know, he, Bud buries her alive and she's got to punch her way out. Yeah. And I think people, once we describe to them how to get out of being buried alive, they're going to be like, oh yeah, Beatrix Kiddo, she did all these things. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh gosh, those movies are so, are so good. I also, I think the thing, because we talked about this before the episode, Jess, that being buried alive is a fear, but you don't ever think it's going to happen to you, right? It, exactly. It's not something like, if you know, here, we're being morbid. Something I do think about a lot actually is like getting shot just randomly anywhere at any time. I think about that happening, possibly like drowning scenarios, things that I really think could actually happen. But no, you're right. I don't think about getting buried, but it it is absolutely a fear. Yeah. It it would be fearful in that situation. Yes. It It would be terrifying. And it's not like, yeah, like I live in an earthquake ridden yeah. place. So you would think, oh yeah, this, this could happen. The likelihood is higher. So I guess for me, I only think about it when I see it in movies or books or what have you. And have you Same. seen the movie Buried with Ryan Reynolds where it's the whole movie is just him in that box? No. Oh, so- I, <laughs> that movie is definitely like, I think the one to watch if you really want to be afraid of being buried alive. So how long is the movie? Is it like a two two hour movie of just him being buried alive in a box? Pretty much, yeah. Is it is it but I'm sure it's fascinating. Yeah. It's all Ryan Reynolds. Um well, I think I might I might rewatch it after doing this episode because it got me thinking about it. Yeah, I rewatched the burial scene in Kill Bill just to like <laughs> let me feel what it's like as I do this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we've seen it covered in movies and, and literature and are there any songs about being buried alive? Probably. Oh, I'm sure. And we know that we were talking about before the episode that it also just happens in life too. Oh yeah. Something that isn't covered in this episode because we focus on premature and accidental burials is the, you know, a mobster kidnaps somebody and buries them alive. We didn't really get into that. But the harsh and morbid truth of it is that I think we just know that it does happen. It does. Like even as recently as like the eighties, when this Illinois publishing heir, Stephen Small was kidnapped and then buried alive. Yeah. Um, And that was in 1987. But yeah, we don't, we're not really getting into that sort of stuff. But today we are starting from a point of, well, when did this first kind of happen that people were accidentally buried alive um, yeah, you, you know, right, Jess? Well, though we're sort of lacking in hard evidence, research and educated guesswork suggests that even our early ancestors did this. It's entirely possible that, with the best of intentions, primitive people might have accidentally buried someone alive. How, you ask? Well, by enclosing a wounded or injured person inside a nearby cave to protect them from predators or the elements, which Makes sense, I guess. (laughs) Yes, it makes total sense. And I think the thinking here was that if the injured person recovered, then they would find their way out of the cave and reunite with the tribe. But in the meantime, enclosing them in the cave meant that they were protected while they recovered. Except that if the wound was fatal or the injured person didn't have the strength to free themselves from the blockade, 
they would consequently be trapped and die inside that cave. So it's definitely one of those like good idea in theory scenarios that can go really wrong. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Then there's the story of the fifth century Roman emperor Flavius Zeno, who allegedly was entombed in a sarcophagus by his wife, Ariadne. It's unclear exactly why, however, a pair of historians from the 12th and 13th centuries both speculated that it was due to his excessive drinking. The story goes that Zeno regained consciousness inside the tomb, but Ariadne refused to let him out despite his cries to pity him. Now, whether this story is truth or myth is questionable at this point. Around the Middle Ages is when records start to become more accessible. Yeah, during the 14th century, the Black Plague was just tearing through Europe and ultimately decimated around half of the continent's population, creating pretty dire consequences. No one was exempt from the reach of the plague, especially the serfdom, the very people who, under normal circumstances, would be the ones digging graves for all of the human remains. It's the irony that the grave diggers are the ones dying when you Mm -hmm. need the most graves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God, who's going to dig those graves? Yeah, and the fear of spreading the disease, the plague, and a lack of space and time to conduct proper funeral rites created all these grave supply issues, grave in direness and grave in actual graves, ultimately leading to the creation of mass grave sites, a.k.a. plague pits, And, you know, oops, not everyone presumed dead of the plague who was buried during this time was actually dead. Yeah, plus distraught mourners would also go a little overboard in their grief and fling themselves into the plague pits. Then, of course, no one would want to help them out of fear that they would emerge from the pits also carrying the disease. Uh, it's yeah, yeah, it's all bad. Yikes. <laughs> Huge. Okay, so all these plague pits are happening and people are coming out of the pits carrying disease and doctors aren't diagnosing people, etc. Now fast forward to the 18th and 19th centuries, our favorite time period here on 30 Morbid Minutes, the Victorian era. Yes. And if you can recall back to our very first episode of the show, Death and Superstition in Victorian England, we talked about the prevalence of death during this time and how ubiquitous it was. Death was just everywhere. It was at the forefront of everyone's mind and people sometimes fixated on and prioritized their death arrangements for getting to focus on life. And this is when we start to see the theme of premature burials popping up in macabre literature like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Uh, aptly titled The Premature Burial, and his other work, The Fall of the House of Usher, which is actually in the works right now as a series with Netflix. I'm very excited for that. Mm -hmm. There were a few people of the time who kind of took up this mantle of activism against being buried alive, (laughs) like they fought it. (laughs) (laughs) And William Tebb, who was this businessman, he had a fear of being buried alive and co-wrote a book called Premature Burial, How It May Be Prevented, which was published in 1905. And this book chronicled 219 instances of narrow escape, 149 which were actual premature burial, and then 10 of bodies that were accidentally dissected before death. I love that there was like a book about it, you know, how it may be prevented to accidentally be buried alive or... Yeah. <laughs> Teb, alongside Walter Hadwin, founded the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial. They tried to pass legislation that would put more onus on doctors and introduced a bill to Parliament proposing that the disposal of the body or burial without a death certificate was unlawful. Now, I know that this was, you know, 100 
50 years ago. But the idea of someone being buried without a death certificate is pretty wild. It is, and which isn't to say that coroners and the like didn't exist. Yeah, there just wasn't infrastructure at this time or official legislation that insisted that when someone died, there had to be an inquiry or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that it was around this time that an Italian psychologist, Enrico Morselli, Ah. coined a term to encompass the fear of being buried alive. Bene. He called it (laughs) taphophobia. (laughs) This word um, combines the Greek words for fear and grave, and taphophobia mainly relates to the extreme claustrophobia aspect associated with being buried alive or the fear of being prematurely buried despite not actually being dead. And George Washington is among history's most notable taphophobes and on his deathbed told his secretary to leave his body interred for three days following his assumed death just to make sure. And this did happen. He was left. And then everyone checked and it was like, yep, he's dead. (laughs) Yep. I'd be like, wrap him up. I make the the wave symbol with my fingers and be like, you know, it's midnight on the third day. We got him. Yep. Yep. Uh, So like George, this fear of being mispronounced dead and being buried alive Well, it gained a lot of traction with a lot of people during the Victorian era. We mentioned, you know, William Tebb and his obsession with it. And the population at large just became obsessed with it, too. I'm obsessed with being buried alive, too. I just just love it so much. (laughs) Much like the 14th century Black Death and the Great Plague of 1665 to 1666, there was mass death happening in London due to various epidemics. An onslaught of cholera outbreaks killed tens of thousands of people between 1832 and 1866. Disease and pestilence ran rampant. Consequently, the mortality rates were astronomically high, especially infant mortality. Yeah, it turns out unprecedented and rapid urbanization combined with poorly contained disease, plus a lack of modern sanitation, as well as underdeveloped medical hygiene, is not a recipe for creating a thriving population, as it were. (laughs) Nor was it even mandatory for doctors to perform autopsies, so death could be diagnosed at arm's length. So doctors are averse to getting too close to patients who might be spreading communicable deadly disease. The fear of being buried alive not only peaks during this time, but the public is whipped into a damn frenzy. They are going wild. Yes. <laughs> like it's if it, there was TikTok every there would be <laughs> hash, you know buried alive TikTok. And oh my god. It would be a whole thing. And it sounds silly now, but identifying and confirming death was a big challenge at this time. Diagnostic technology back then was not very sophisticated. Doctors still use outdated techniques from centuries before to confirm the status of a death. Yeah, some of these techniques were pretty unsophisticated and seem kind of ridiculous by contemporary standards, like just holding a mirror under the nose of someone to check for breath or touching a red hot iron to a person's skin to sort of incite a reaction. Um, I think there were extreme situations where they put that red hot iron other places (sighs) to try to make sure that somebody was really, really, really dead. Yeah. (laughs) But well into the 19th century, these were the methods that were still used. I still feel like in some movies we see, they still use the mirror nose to check for breath. Um, the stethoscope and its original most rudimentary design, a wooden tube, wasn't invented until 1816 in France. From then on, the design of the stethoscopes and how well they actually worked evolved. 
And it wasn't until like 1851 that it saw its next major upgrade to a binaural instrument, meaning it could be heard through both ears. The 20th century saw more improvements to the design, but yeah, even the early stethoscope wasn't a sure thing. I'm thinking of like a wooden tube. Yeah, it, it kind of was. It was just like the idea of like, this might magnify sound, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you would put it to someone's chest and just listen to it. Yeah. And it's so, you know, interesting to think about that was like, a, it was an advancement at the time. Yeah, we had to Do start that. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, adding to that, if someone had a low pulse or breathing rate or was in a coma, there was a chance that they could also just get mislabeled as dead. The only really sure confirmation of death was to wait for putrefaction, which is the fifth stage of death following pallor mortis, algor mortis, rigor mortis, a fave, and liver mortis. Putrefaction is the stage of decay and decomposition. And this generally starts to happen when a body is a couple days post-mortem. Keep in mind, though, that this is still an era where corpses were not left to linger. No, nope, no. Nope, nope. The the modus operandi was to get people in the ground ASAP and for a variety of reasons. And the biggest one was because when people died, wakes were still observed within the home, meaning you just didn't want a corpse on the precipice of decay hanging out in your <laughs> living room or getting funky in the spare bedroom for a week. And don't let the misinformation fool you. The term wake, though it does sound like the you know, this is where wake comes from, it doesn't imply that you might be doing it because you're waiting to see if the deceased wakes up. That's not what it, where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. The 19th century saw the rise of the modern funeral industry as we know it because of all the death and the changing standards by which people mourned. Consequently, there grew more advanced techniques for displaying bodies as well as an increased interest and demand for embalming. Yeah, the process of honoring the dead before interment became more elaborate and less rushed. Mortuaries were established for holding bodies for longer periods of time, and alongside them, mortuary colleges to train new morticians. And like you said, Jess, the fear of being buried alive during this time actually helped popularize the embalming process. (laughs) Yes, and it also gained traction due to the Civil War as the bodies of fallen soldiers were being transported all over the U.S. arsenic was the most popular embalming fluid of the time. But that's a whole other topic for a different episode, which we should totally cover. Arsenic. Wow. Okay. Yep. So embalming was becoming a whole thing, but still a fairly new endeavor, usually limited to the wealthy and ripe with potential for issues and misdiagnoses. There are recorded cases of people coming, quote unquote, back to life while in the process of being embalmed, which... It just sends chills down my spine. Yep, yep. (laughs) There's this story about this prominent church official back in 1837 named Cardinal Somglia who was ill and then was presumed dead. So there were provisions made to have him embalmed. As his chest was cut open, it was clear that his heart was still beating, which would have caused my heart to stop beating, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the cardinal allegedly woke up for a brief moment before dying from the incision in his chest cavity. Which I don't get. I think you like, maybe you don't start with the heart. You start with the leg or something. That makes sense. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Just in case. Just in case. Um, To combat error and prevent someone from being mispronounced dead or autopsied or buried alive, there were an ingenious few who developed and patented devices and methods to act as safeguards and deterrents. And this is the fun part of the episode. 
so to speak, um, which we are going to get to in a minute after a word from our sponsors. One of my favorite backyard activities is sitting around a fire with my favorite Bev and making some s'mores with friends. That's my ideal summer night. What is yours, Elise? Me too. I love to sit on my back patio, enjoying the summer nights here in Los Angeles <laughs> around a fire, thinking of my pal Jessica, who's in her backyard. <laughs> also, in, we're like ships in the night. But I look up at the stars and I think, there she is. She's looking at the same star. Yes. And uh, this is where some of life's best moments happen and memories are made. And a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable. Mm-hmm. Because instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and just actually enjoy the fire. There are so many digital distractions that we have. Life is busy, but I love just chilling, taking it easy, warming by the fire, listening to 30 morbid minutes as I do. <laughs> and um, some of my favorite campfire moments are on the beach too. I, I've i actually never been to a fire on the beach. So, oh, now I'm going to bring my solo stove yeah. to a beach. We should, oh, yeah. we should, when I go visit you in LA, we'll go to the beach and bring our solo stove. <sighs> oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Solo stove has a smokeless design that is head and shoulders above typical fire pits, like truly smokeless. No icky smoke fumes sticking to your clothes or making you cough, which is one of my personal favorite things about a solo stove because I hate smelling like smoke even after I shower. I swear it sticks oh, to me yeah. for days. Absolutely. And the great thing about solo stove is like, you don't have this that smoke sticking to you after. And when you receive your bonfire or whichever edition you buy, you'll have it set up aside and ready to go in minutes. The kit is so easy and straightforward. I have the bonfire, which is the mid-range and the most popular version. Great for backyards. You can also get these fun little color packs from them. So you can have like cool colors in the flames and stuff. It's, it's awesome. I know. So easy to use, unpack, and get started. Another great thing about Solo Stove is that they're um, easy to move and transport. So you can literally take them anywhere on camping trips to the beach, wherever. Mm-hmm. Cleanup's easy. All it takes is a you know to light is a few bits of starter, and then you'll have your fire going in minutes. And like I said, like not a ton of mess. So, you know, you're left with just pure white ash to, to empty out. The Solo Stove uh, has stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. So little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. And they're built to last. Plus, they just look really cool and polished. Solo Stove is so confident you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and a 30-day free return policy. Right now, you can get big discounts on all fire pits during Solo Stove's summer sale and use promo code 30MM at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. That's solostove.com, promo code 30MM, 30MM for $10 off on top of their incredible summer sale discounts. Thank you, Solo Stove. Now back to the show. Okay, so Jess, here's the meat of it, because the thing about the Victorian era is due to the obsession with being buried alive, they came up with all of these strategies and deterrents to avoid it happening. So let's get into it. What are some of the fun ones? Yeah, this one blew my mind. Um, The safety coffin. There are a bunch of different patented designs for variants of these kinds of coffins, but they all seek to do one thing. Allow someone who has been prematurely buried alive to send a signal to those of us in the above ground world that they're still alive. Uh-huh. This is creepy. Lot, yeah. And we've talked about this, but a lot of the designs included a bell system. 
And I think this is what, you know, you see in movies like the movie The Nun uh, has the the bell in the the graveyard. And uh-huh. what happened was these designs ran a cord in, inside a coffin, but they did it through a pipe that went from the coffin to the surface and was attached to a little bell on a on a frame that the mistaken deceased could ring for help. So they'd like pull the little the idea being they'd pull a little string in the coffin and it would ring the bell on the surface. And sometimes it wasn't a bell. It was a flag or feathers or some other signal. Man, if it was a flag, I feel like there'd be people having to like be watching the area or yeah. maybe they'd see it from a distance. I wonder how yeah, high the flag the, went. But The gravekeeper. Yeah. Probably, oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. Would have to be watching for it. But can you imagine like if you're alone at night in a cemetery and then you just hear that bell ringing? Like, my God. <laughs> Oh, ter- terrifying. But also yeah. it's so bizarre. I know that there were gravekeepers just in general, but also like, hey, one of your duties is just to make sure that nobody's still alive underneath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, no big deal. Some would have pipes running to the surface, which would be open to provide the casket's occupant with fresh air or little ladders that could be deployed for the deceased to climb out, presumably after breaking a hole through the coffin. Yeah. The ladder one's so funny to me because I'm like, if you're buried underground, like, where's how's this ladder going to work? <laughs> I, I, the only thing that I can think of is if if you're laying down, the ladder is somehow glued or attached to the top of the the, the top of the casket. And so then when you push it open, I know you're trying to make holes and, but maybe when you push it open, it's like, and then you could just climb out that way. That's, I I don't know though, because this is a whole mess on how to get out in general. Yeah. Well, I just, I think if I was like discovered, I would, was buried alive. And then I'm like, oh, there's this little ladder. I just break off a piece of ladder and bash my head in. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, Uh, I'm not getting out of this. (laughs) Uh, there was one design patented in 1885 by Charles Seeler and Frederick Borntrager, which added a tube that could be positioned above the face of the buried body. So like this tube was above the face and then it ran to the surface and then a lamp could be sent down the tube. So that way that someone that was like above ground looking down through the tube could see the defa- the face of the deceased. <laughs> but like, I guess you're just looking to see if they're awake. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. 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 Uh, some coffin designs included a feeding tube. Dr. Adolf Gutsmuth was buried alive several times to demonstrate a safety coffin of his own design and once even ate a meal of soup bratwurst, marzipan, sauerkraut, spatzel, beer, and for dessert, you guys ready for this? I'm going to pronounce it the best I can. Prince Regententort. Delivered to him through the coffin's feeding tube. One coffin designed in 1868 by Franz Vester even had a little storage place for snacks. Which I love. <laughs> I I'd do too. Like, okay, like I would ask for that now if I was. Yes, we all need a snack. In my will. Look, look up the snacks, man. Um, a late 18th century English invention involved a pane of glass placed over a coffin. And this is my favorite one because the Victorians had zero chill. (laughs) So then a mortician would paintbrush the words, I am dead in silver nitrate on the inside of the glass. This would be your favorite. Like that's, this is something you would do. Yeah. So they would like, it would be invisible. They would like paint these words. I am dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the writing invisible was 
the writing was invisible until until putrefaction set in and the gases released from decomposition caused a reaction to make it appear. Oh, that's so cool and <laughs> entirely unnecessary. No, for sure. <laughs> the Germans thought they had it figured out, though. There was this physician named Christoph Wilhelm Hufland who built and designed these small chambers known as Lichenhauser or waiting house. So they were kind of like these prototype morgues and they meant they contained the deceased until decomposition set in. And the first designs of these little like houses, I kind of picture them to sort of be like, um, you know, somewhere you could like a sauna mm-hmm. almost. But his first designs could hold up to like eight bodies at a time. These waiting houses evolved and became more elaborate throughout their usage in the early 19th century. Unlike contemporary morgues, which offset decay, the idea here was to speed it up. Yeah, they would pump warm air into these rooms. And even some, they would put like flowers in to mask the smell of decay. And someone was assigned to stand watch and observed if any of the interim corpses woke up or rang one of the safety bells provided. That being said, if there were signs of decomposition occurring, a trapdoor in the floor of the chamber could be opened so the body could drop down and slide into a grave or casket. It's like real life Sweeney Todd. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> like, oh yeah, he's dead open the door. He's dead open the door. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, he slides, crumples into a casket. It's like... <laughs> How convenient. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, we mentioned earlier that embalming was becoming more and more popularized uh, due to the Civil War. And the same goes for corpse refrigeration uh, in its infancy at this time. And there's one unique invention that gains some traction, and that is the ice coffin. The ice coffin. Yeah. (laughs) That would be my Top Gun call sign. Yes. No. My helmet would be ice coffin. Yes. Yes, the remains of fallen soldiers needed to be transported by train all over the country, which could take days, hence the need for these coffins with built-in chambers for blocks of ice to essentially freeze the body and stave off decomposition. Yeah, and because the ice would melt, they even had these like little holes and tubes for runoff of water once the ice melted. But I think there were times too when, you know, maybe a big block of ice would melt and then kind of drop inside the compartment and it would make a, a sound, which oh. if I was on that train would scare the like ever living bejesus out of me. Um, yeah. And was the body, because like, I know that sometimes like we had talked about the water and the body creates like a slipperiness. Was the ice also getting on the body creating? I don't know if that was a thing. Oh, maybe. I, I don't think know. The, I think the thinking was like there were there. You had the body, which was in like a little con- compartment in the casket. And then there were other compartments around it where the ice. OK. OK. So it wasn't like leaking into that. Yeah. Because that would no. have caused some issues, I feel. Yeah. And we should add a footnote here that the whole buried alive thing, it did happen. But there's still a bunch of like myth around it. And if you run a Google search, you'll find stories of poor souls whose remains were exhumed later only to discover like claw marks on the inside of the coffin lid, you know, pointing to the fact that, oh, maybe they regained consciousness and they tried to claw their way out or the body was moved around a little bit. Yeah, both of which could point to rigor mortis not having set in until after burial. Uh-huh. Yeah. So like sometimes, I'm sure there were times mm. where someone tried to claw out and that's what the oh, yeah. marks are. But sometimes I think it's like, oh, the person could have been having a reaction and mm-hmm. claw, claw, claw. Um, there's a story that was published in the July 22nd, 1890 edition of the Undertaker's Journal, which tells of this pregnant woman, Labrina Murley, who died from hysterics and was entombed in a vault on Thursday, July 3rd. 
Um, she was discovered by Saturday having torn at her clothes and turned over in her coffin, during which time she gave birth to her seven-month-old baby, and both she and the baby were dead. And, you know, it. this all sounds like stories of a time gone by, like an artifact of a different century, but it still happens in the present day, right? Just people being prematurely assumed dead. Yeah. In 2014, a Mississippi man was pronounced dead, put into a body bag, and taken to a funeral home. But once brought into the embalming room, his legs began to move. Ugh. And the coroner realized that the man was still alive. A shock for sure, until he passed away for real two weeks later. Ugh. I know. Yeah. <laughs> In 2011, a Russian woman collapsed following a heart attack and was pronounced dead. Fast forward to a few days later when she woke up at her own funeral surrounded by mourners. I'm sorry for laughing. It's just like the idea of waking up your your own funeral is kind of, you know. Um, She lived for another 12 days before dying for good from heart failure. So this makes me think of our near-death experience episode. Was she just like chilling in a near-death experience, like in another world for this time? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like where... I feel like it's like she was like that close to death that it was it was like, oh, you know, she it was hard to tell the difference. Yeah, it's strange. <laughs> but gosh. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, Elise, it sounds like we should prepare for this eventually. No? Oh, yeah. I think after all <laughs> we've talked about, at first we thought... Oh, this will never happen to us, but it sounds like it could actually. So we are going to present to you all the 30 Morbid Minutes step-by-step guide on what to do when you're buried alive. Now, we've pulled from other guides and sources, and while they may vary slightly in the nuance and exact steps, there are general commonalities across them all. Here it comes. (laughs) Here we go. The first and foremost point of importance is to stay calm, conserve air, and do not waste oxygen. Because your heart rate will get elevated and more rapid and you'll breathe faster and eventually you will start to hyperventilate, potentially. So inhale deeply, hold your breath, conserve your air, exhale slowly. (sighs) Yes. She's demonstrating for us. I'm I'm demonstrating for us all. Yes. So devices like matches and lighters waste oxygen too. Also, don't scream. I know you're going to want to, but it's likely no one can hear you and you're just wasting more oxygen and raising your heartbeat. In a classic coffin, there's maybe an hour or two left of air. So keep that Uh in mind. Ryan Reynolds found that out the hard way. Um, Your next step is to get the F out. So more modern coffins tend to be sturdier. Therefore, they are harder to break through. So you might be a little out of luck there. But if you have something solid that can make noise against the lid, use it. Yeah, like a belt, a ring, a watch, anything you might have on you. Flashlight, maybe? Yeah, yeah. if you are if you have a flashlight, that might be questionable as to why you're in there. But mm. um, if it's a simple, cheap pine box, then get ready because Beatrix kiddos of the world, you're going to bust your way out. Wiggle your big toes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, I specifically, when I was watching it again, looking at the box, I was like, it looks like a pine box. Pretty sure yeah. it was. There's a step in here that requires you to be wearing some type of long sleeve button up shirt. So it's a very specific step, but you can try it if if you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's what you do. You like cross your arms over your chest, then raise them, raise your elbows up toward your head and, and like take your shirt off. And the collar should still be around your neck. And then you can tie the bottom of your shirt like in this knot over your head. 
basically you've now got a makeshift bag over your head. So this protects you from the dirt that's about to fall all over your face as you claw your way out of here. Otherwise, your nose and mouth will fill with it, eventually suffocating you. Yeah, it's go time now, baby. <laughs> once, you've, once you've got that bag over your head, uh, you might be able to use the same belt or watch or ring that you use to make noise to start hammering on the lid of the coffin or to like try and create a hole. Um, and then if you don't have any of these things, you just use what you got. So you have to punch or kick at it. Yeah. Shoddily made or cheap coffins may actually already be compromised or start to break or collapse once they're buried due to the immense weight and pressure of the earth covering them. So there's a chance that could work in your favor as well. Mm -hmm. So you've like started punching and kicking at this lid and it's finally broken. And then loose dirt is starting to fall down on you, like rain down on you. What do you do? You're going to throw and push that loose dirt toward your feet and your side, moving it away from your upper half because the goal here is to get yourself into a sitting upright position. Do not stop. Fill up that empty space. Keep striving to move upward. Yeah, and it will be easier to accomplish this if it hasn't been raining outside because like wet dirt is much denser and heavier. <laughs> but as that dirt is coming through, think upward. Like just think, have that mental vision of up, up, up. Like you got to keep moving, crawling, standing up until you can get your way to the surface and break free. And you know what? I say, don't forget to grab a little snack from the snack compartment for the road because <laughs> you're probably that, hungry. Yeah, that is point. the most important part is mm -hmm. the snack. Yeah, absolutely. Snack. <sighs> Jess, what little snacks will you put in for me in my coffin? Um, maybe some gummy bears. Get some chicken I, Should we record the, I don't know why I was thinking of this when I was like explaining, like you're going to throw, you're going to push the, I, I feel like we should record us as like cheerleaders. Like we should have like a recording out there in the world of me and you just like cheering them on. Like you're going to push that dirt. So like <laughs> if anybody finds themselves in this, they can just think of us cheering them on to get the hell out of this coffin. So like we can do that for you. Yeah. Let's I love make that it. idea. We, let's let's yeah. make it. And then you could you, what you do is you put in your will that when you you're buried you want to be buried with like a 2005 iPod Nano or whatever yep <laughs> that has yep. Mm -hmm. uh, this recording of Jessica and I on it yeah yeah and just click play and then get the fuck out of there and we'll be your yeah. little cheerleaders mm -hmm. so do you think you could survive being buried alive Jess I would do what you're not supposed to do in the very beginning and that is you know kick scream like all scream. that stuff using all the oxygen yeah. oxygen. I would. And then I would probably remember this conversation and try and, yeah, breathe slowly, calm myself, meditate, and then really focus. But I know that I would absolutely scream in the beginning and yeah, use same. a lot of oxygen. I, I feel like I mean, you're, it, it's you just survival not? mode. Yeah. yeah. You're a human and you're, you're, it's shocking. It's terrifying. And it's, it's a natural reaction. Yeah. Well, I, I hope none of our listeners have to use that guide, but knowing what sickos they all are, it, it's yeah. a, there's a very real chance. Yeah. Don't do this to anyone else either. So that's something. Like, oh, yeah. Don't bury people alive. Mm -hmm. Well, we learned a lot this episode. We really did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and let us know if you have any other potential thoughts on this or any other tips and tricks <laughs> that um, we could use uh, to survive being buried alive. You know, please, please add us at 30 Morbid Minutes, at Jessica Vasami and at Elise Willems. Also, let us know what what snack you would put in the compartment of your safety coffin. I don't know why I said gummy bears for you. They're colorful. They're like happy. 
um, they're I gummy. Choke. I could use them to choke. <laughs> When you I could, I, that, yes, absolutely. You can stuff them yeah. up your nose. I don't know, yeah. just cause for fun. I think that's a good one. Um, <laughs> do you think that you'd put a little compartment where you'd put Nina, your turtle, in next to you? No, she would. She bite you. She like. She would probably be like, "You fucking bitch got me into this situation." I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, she'd come up and claw me. She has big nails. Oh. Um. She'd come claw me. She'd bite me. Although she's never bit me, but if I put her in this situation, whoo. She'd be pissed. <laughs> very, very, very pissed. But she also loves dirt. So honestly, turtles, we're getting off track, but like she loves to like dig in dirt and then she likes to bury herself in the dirt. So Aww. she could help with the clawing out. She could. She really so could. Nina's exactly who you would want. She's you. tiny and wouldn't be able to make much of a dent, but still. <laughs> it's the thought that counts. It's the thought and it's the effort. Go, Aww. Nina, go. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. Uh, for everyone listening to the show, thank you so, so much. Thank you for the amazing fan art, for tweeting at us and leaving us comments and interesting feedback. We love it. Also, for rating and reviewing us and sharing the show. It helps so much. A hundred percent. Yes. And as always, Rooster Teeth store, we've got our merch. So go check that out so if cute. you haven't already. Mm-hmm. And you can follow us on social at Jessica Vasami, at Elise Williams, at 30 Morbid Minutes. That's where you should come and tell us what snacks you would have inside with you. As you're being buried alive. And next week on the show, we are talking about making an exorcist. How does somebody become an exorcist? I'm just really looking forward to that one, Elise. Jess, what if we enrolled you into the Vatican's class? Would you do it? I would go purely for historical and just fast. I would love to go to the Vatican and just study and yeah. just be around. But no, I don't want to go to the exorcist class I go specifically. For the I would hope they have lots of pasta and pizza. Yeah, and the free trip. <laughs> and the free trip. And I would want to learn all the secrets. Because we know that there are secrets and I want to know all of them. How Pope? <laughs> How to Pope. Yeah. Yeah. How Pope. (laughs) Well, for now, I guess, bad bye. Bad bye. You sickos. 